0: Next question is from Jonas about justice in the larger consciousness system. Imagine a terrorist who kills many people and then finally kills himself. The terrorist believes that he's doing something great by killing as many people as possible. When he awakens in that transition reality, is there some instance telling him that he did something wrong? Is there justice in the larger consciousness system?
1: Well, now that depends on what you mean by justice. If by justice you mean that he has to be punished and, and beaten to the you know to the point that he suffers as much as all those people he killed you know that kind of thing if that's your your justice kind of a karmic justice if you have to have done to you what you've done to others no that does not happen uh, if your if your justice is that he is uh, worked with until he understands the enormity of his error. That he understands, you know, the uh, the hole that he's dug for himself, I guess, as far as his own growth goes. That he understands the things he did that were wrong and why they were wrong. Yes, he does get that. And he has worked with, because you see, he has another incarnation coming up after this. And there's no point just sending people back if you don't have any, uh, you know, uh, learning in the process i mean this has to be a a cumulative learning so it wouldn't be effective for the system just to pat them on the rump and send them back in and say well try better next time you first go through a process where you help them see the mistakes they made so that they will be kind of pre-programmed if you like not to make those mistakes again they will understand the mistake why they made it where it came from and where it led them to the awful things that they did. And they'll have to own all that. They'll have to accept that they did that and uh, that it was a horrible thing to do. It wasn't at all glory. They didn't end up, you know, with, um, you know, seven virgins or whatever, 70 or whatever one gets for killing a lot of people that are God's enemy. That it didn't work out well. They're not heroes. In fact, they've got an awful lot to learn. And now they're further back than they were before. They're they're in a deeper hole. They've de-evolved and they're going to have to do a lot of work to even get back to where they were. And they have to understand that and go into the next incarnation focused on now doing better, digging them, you know, getting out of that hole they dug for themselves. So maybe they won't go into a place that's so challenging. Maybe that was just too challenging and they weren't able to deal with that very well. So they will go into a simpler state where they are not so challenged that way. And they'll build it back up and build it back up. So that's what happens to someone like that. No, they're not beaten and punished and made to feel all the pain that they caused. They're just learning. That's the point of the system is for people to grow up So the system does what's most effective to help that person grow up. So there's no punishment other than the fact that you've de-evolved and now you're going to have to grow up some just to get out of the hole that you created for yourself from that de-evolution. That's all the punishment there is, and that's not really punishment. That's just the way the world works. It's not uh, something done to them. It's something they've done to themselves that now they have to undo by themselves. So I'm not sure what you mean by justice, but that's basically what happens. There is no punishment for wrong deeds. Um, there is no uh, karmic suffering as much as you've caused. There's just education and learning and trying to do better. And put in a situation where the probability is that you will do better. See, everybody's put into a, a situation in their incarnation that looks like they have the probability that they will succeed. And the system does that as much as it can based on what it has to work with. Well, it doesn't necessarily have a lot of great situations to work with because there's a whole lot of people out there with fear. So it does the best it can with uh, putting people in situations that they can succeed with.
0: Well, Tom, that learning as opposed to punishment can be a bit more challenging than people might imagine.
1: Oh, yes, I'm sure it's a horrendous thing to realize that you weren't, uh, you know, benefiting the glory of God. You were just murdering a bunch of, you know, innocent victims. That's probably a pretty tough pill to swallow. And I suspect there's a lot of pushback on that at first, but eventually, you know, you get through. And eventually they see that. And that's, yes, I I would agree. That's not a trivial thing. That's a rather dramatic, uh, rearrangement of their belief system and that's what happens and after they get that rearrangement straight and, and they get refocused then they get back in the game and hopefully do better
0: Alright Tom, the next question is from Tim uh, Tim Martins on the Mandela Effect I would like to know if Tom has heard of the so called Mandela Effect if he recognizes the effect himself or what it is or can be in relation to my big toe. I quote a short description from the internet. The Mandela Effect is a term for where a group of people all misremember the same detail, event, or physicality. It is named after the instance in which a large group of people all shared the same memory that Nelson Mandela died prior to his actual 2013 death usually sometime in the 1980s. The effect has exploded in popularity on the Internet when a peculiar example popped up where a majority of people seem to have recalled that the Bernstein Bears books as being spelled as... recalled the Bernstein Bears books as being spelled as Berenstein or some other variation differing from the actual spelling. A very famous thing they say, for example the very popular sentence Darth Vader says to Luke in Star Wars, Luke, I am your father. But this sentence never existed like this. You should be able to know this one, Tom. The real sentence is, no, I am your father. And even the actor who played Darth Vader in this specific scene quoted the sentence like the first. There are many other examples, and some look very strange to me. It seems like a funny kind of effect.
1: Okay, there's couple of ways that this effect might come about and one way is very ordinary and that is that you know people don't remember things precisely they remember things metaphorically they remember things sort of you know memory is not a, a really a precise thing with details when we recall things we recall the big big bunch of it, uh, you know, the the, the the main things, what was going on and why it was going on and how it was going on. But the details tend to get lost. Why? Because in our experience, we don't focus on those details. We focus on the bigger thing that's going on. And we don't really notice, you know, the color of the wallpaper. So you leave the room and somebody says, oh, by the way, what was the color of the wallpaper? And you have no idea. You've been in that room for three hours and have no idea what color of the wallpaper is. Well, that's pretty... Normal, we miss details. Now, so a lot of times, people just don't pick up the detail. And they have attitudes, and these attitudes can be kind of culturally based, which means widespread. And the attitude uh, would fill in for the missing information. So the thing with Darth Vader, you know, Luke, I'm your father. Well, that says everything that was important there about that scene. It was identifying, you know, Darth Vader as Luke's father. And that does it more directly. The fact that it was really worded slightly differently. Well, the one that says, yeah, it says, Luke, I'm your father. That actually sounds better. People like that better because it's very straightforward. The no, I am your father. Eh, Well, not really, you know, no, what do you mean? No, I'm. I am your father. Well, no must have been to some other sentence that was said before that, you see. So anyway, they, they would remember the simple one. It's not really they've remembered, but that's what they pull up and they fill in the details to something that's more suitable for them. So that's just an ordinary kind of thing. People fill in the details to suit the moment, to suit what sounds right or feels right to them because they don't really remember the details. That no is very unrememberable. And uh, the, the Luke, I am your father, just sounds like it's uh, better. You know, if he didn't say that, you know, he should have, right? It's that, it's that sort of thing. That's the way people would see it. Now, the thing about Mandela and uh, the, the Bernstein Bears, well, you know, things like Bernstein and Bernstein, Bernstein is not a familiar name. Well, it was the name that the author gave to the bears, but a name ending in stain is not very common and a name ending in Stein. Well, there's millions of names that end in Stein, right? So that's a very common thing. So people would look at it and just in their mind, they would see Bernstein because that's familiar to them. You know, sometimes these things go around on the internet where you have, uh, they'll take words. And they'll keep the first two or three letters of the word and the last two or three letters of the word and totally scramble the ones in the middle. And most people can just read it right along, even though all the letters in the middle are wrong. It doesn't matter because they see the first, they see the last. There's a pattern match. They get the pattern and they interpret as that word and they go on. Well, when they look at this thing of the Bernstein bears, Bernstein just doesn't compute because that's not something they're used to. Their mind turns it into Bernstein because that's very familiar, and they go on. You see, they never notice the difference because they just pick the thing that's familiar. That's how we do. We do things on pattern match. So you look at Bernstein and you pattern match that to Bernstein because that's familiar. So those sorts of normal things can explain a lot of this. Now, the one about Mandela is a little different, and this takes us to the other way, the other reason that this can happen, other than just kind of the psychology of the way people interact with language, and that is that there is a groupthink. There is a shared mental space in where we are all communicating with each other. We're all networked. And particularly if we are interested in the same thing, if we're all in the same club or we're all in the same mob or we're all in the same you know, movie theater having the same experience, if we're all in a, in a similar group, there's a lot of thinking that is very similar and these similarities are passed back and forth and pretty soon we are kind of connected with group mind. Well, you could have some people who would think well, when, when did, you know, Nelson Mandela die? And, they, you know, they'd maybe have the wrong idea, but that wrong idea, if other people kind of thought, yeah, gee, it was a long time ago, and they may then get the idea that it, of this date, and the date was wrong, but they share that information because they're all interested in this the same thing. So they're all kind of connected. Because they're connected, they share the data. Well, it happens, it's misinformation. Well, that happens too. <laughs> it's information. We pass information around, we pass misinformation around. We pass around whatever happens to be in our mind. So in that case, it may be a case of kind of group mind that got misinformation and that misinformation spreads. And the more people who believe or who get that misinformation, the more power it has to spread further because now you've got more and more people with that thought in their mind. So, you know, it's uh, it's the same way that... Um, You know, fads work the same way, where suddenly, you know, there's 100,000 people standing in line at 4 o'clock in the morning to buy a Beanie Baby or to uh, get a hula hoop or something. And you say, what is this insanity? You know, what's going on here? You know, Beanie Baby is a ridiculous little thing. You know, it's a piece of cloth with beans in it, probably not even beans, you know, little chunks of styrofoam or something. It's not much anything at all. Why are people crazy to stand in line to get this thing? Well, that's group mind. You get a couple of people and they have good advertising and the advertiser you know, whoops it up on TV all over the place and people start to think about it and they start to feed each other and pretty soon you have a fad. Everybody has to have one. And if you say to an individual like that, well, why do you have to have one? Why are you here at four o'clock in the morning waiting for this door to open? And most of them wouldn't be able to tell you. It's just something they have to do. You see, and that's the way it is with group mind. It's just You get this sense, it's just something you have to do. Well, mobs are like that, right? They want to go lynch somebody, you know, and, they, you know, they all get worked up in the same mindset to where they're much worse than they would be individually or much better if you have a, a positive group. So it could be group mind passing around misinformation that causes this, or I think a lot of it could be just the way human psychology works with language where it fills in things and, and the way it, uh, you know, works with memory. You you do pattern matching so you don't really inspect words and say, Oh, that was Baron Stain. And everybody who read that book saw the word Baron Stain. You know, why do they think it's Stein? Well, they didn't actually see the word. They looked at the word, pattern matched it to something that was in their mind, and went on. Just like we do when we read words that uh, aren't spelled right, but they got the first few letters and the last few letters. We do that same thing, we pattern match. Don't even notice that the words not spelled right. See, so that's my thought about uh, the Mandela effect. It could be group mind, but a lot of times it could just be human memory and language.
0: There's a new craze called Pokemon Go, and that that's 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 also a, a, uh, a popular trend.
1: Yeah, right. If but, you get a hundred, if you get a thousands and thousands of people excited about it. Even if they're excited about it in some other country, you know, you pick up that, you pick that up and the excitement then when you do notice it or you do see it, oh yeah, that's that, you know, and you're already excited about it just <laughs> because you've gotten that, uh, that excitement, uh, vibe from elsewhere. And what else do they call that? The hundredth monkey effect, right? Where uh, things spread mind to mind, ideas and concepts move. And what did Jung call that? Archetypes. Archetypes get built up around many minds thinking and feeling similar things. Produce archetypes that have a life of their own. And it's the same thing. It's a it's a group, a group mind, a group think sharing uh, between netted IUOCs. And there's no reason why they can't share misinformation just as well as they share information.
0: Well, we'll move on to the next question. Just. To my best recollection, I have never purchased a Beanie Baby. I don't <laughs> think. I, no, I haven't. Okay, next question <laughs> is from Polly. And uh, Polly asks, exercises as technology for growth and your attitude towards self-improvement. He's asking your opinion. Do you think that there are some concrete body, mind, and breath exercises which create concrete beneficial effects for your body and mind? talking, for example, about some yogic exercises. An Indian mystic called Sadhguru says there are such exercises which are, in essence, a technology for creating human well-being and spiritual growth. He usually describes these things in terms of various energies, where these concrete body, mind, and breath exercises create concrete energy effects and outcomes, even in people who don't expect and don't believe that something could happen
1: okay let 's take a pause there because that's kind of a main that's a main idea, and we'll work with that one first before we go on um, There is a connection between body and mind because of the rule set okay the rule set says that the the consciousness can only operate with whatever the avatar you know with the restrictions that the avatar has according to the rule set. So the avatar can only think so fast, jump so high, you know, uh, do certain things because he has constraints because of his rule set, his body and and brain, virtual brain, virtual body, are basically constraints that, that uh, constrain the consciousness to work within the constraints of the virtual reality game. So, Body and mind are connected that way, and a healthy body is good for a active mind. If you if you are unhealthy, you're just adding constraints to your avatar. Now the avatar is tired. Now the avatar has a headache. Now the avatar you know is worried about their tumor. The avatar is distracted because of the toothache the, you know you just set constraints on your avatar by being unhealthy so if you're healthy and your body is in good shape feeling good and you have lots of energy then you've minimized the constraints that the rule set is going to place on consciousness from that avatar okay so that's that's one thing so there is a connection there now when sad guru says you have these exercises and they will create Um, Let's see, energy effects, right? If people didn't uh, know about it or didn't believe it. Okay. What he has done is one, he's teaching them exercises that are very much like a meditation. You know, exercise, meditation is often around the breath or a posture in yoga. And it works the same way. What is operational in meditation? isn't the actual breathing or the body or the mantra or any of those things. Those are just tools that help focus your mind. What's going on in meditation is that you're shutting out the noise. You're shutting out all the monkey mind, the jabbering, the analysis, the judging, all that stuff that's going on in your mind all the time. And you have tools to help you shut that out. A mantra is a tool to do that. Being present and observing your breath is a tool to do that. Sitting in a certain posture is a tool to do that. These are all tools that help you focus your mind. And the way, let's say, looking at your breath works is that if you just keep your mind on your breath, well, then you're not thinking about anything else. And your breath just isn't all that entertaining. It's not that interesting. It's not that exciting. So you're just kind of drifting with this idea. Yeah, I'm breathing in and out, in and out. And that gets so boring that your mind is set free. Basically, you get free of all the sensory data input. It's a similar thing when you read a book. You read a book. You get rid of all the sensory data. You're, You're lost in your book. You're not aware of the chair you're sitting in, of the of the room that you're in, or anything else. You're just involved in your story. Well. What you've done is you've taken that story and used that story as a tool to push away all of your sense data. See, so that's the same thing. This is just different tools. But of course, if you use a book, then you've pushed away your sense data, but you've replaced it with a bunch of <laughs> information in your story. So your mind's still full of analysis and thinking and who done it and that kind of thing. So you haven't really emptied your mind. You've just replaced one set of inputs with a different set of inputs. When you say a mantra or listen to your, or I mean, pay attention to your breath or work on very specific postures that you hold for long periods of time, then you're replacing your exterior sensory input with something that's very boring, non-operative, something that is just easy to let go of, something that doesn't make you analyze or judge or think or do analysis. I mean, how much analysis can you do on breathing in and breathing out? You see, it's very limited. So that kind of thing is a tool that allows people to make gains in their meditation. Now, particularly when you have a well-known yogi who tells you that this tool is going to work for you no matter what, now we have some placebo effect in there too. Now you've got a positive attitude toward the result, which also raises the probability that it's going to work really well for you. So I would say that that, uh, what the yogi is doing there is he's creating tools that people believe will work and that those tools do work. One, because it's a good tool, because a relaxed body is a good place to start for a relaxed mind, and because of a positive attitude toward the outcome is going to help that outcome. The physical body is not connected to the consciousness. The consciousness is just getting information from a server about what's happening in this virtual world. The physical body is not connected to the soul. You know, of course, we have you know, out of body, right? That starts with the idea that there's this soul, there's this energy body that lives inside of you and you need to get it out. And Once you get it out, it can go fly around and do other things. It's, it has all its perception with it. Though it doesn't have eyes or ears or a nose, but somehow it has its perception with it and it can go perceive things. But it, has to, it lives inside of you. Well, you see, that's just a belief. That's a belief that the physical is dominant and then we have this spirit that lives in us. And we have the chakras, and that's the same thing. You have all this energy that's in your body, and you have these seven different energy centers, and they do all things. It's more tools. None of that's fundamental. The consciousness is in non-physical. Then you have the body that doesn't really exist. It's ones and zeros in a computer. It's computed. You get the data, and you interpret it as this. Okay? Okay. So the physical, there's nothing you can do to the physical that will force the consciousness to do anything other than you can increase or decrease its limitations according to the rule set. That's it. You see, you're not going to do some kind of thing that's suddenly going to force the consciousness to become enlightened or, uh, you know, go places or do things because you've done this to the body. The physical doesn't drive the consciousness The physical is ones and zeros on a hard drive. It's just information that you interpret as being physical, just like you do with the World of Warcraft. You get a bunch of pixels on a flat screen, and you interpret that as a 3D world. Well, now you get a bunch of data, and you interpret it as this 3D world. That data that describes the body has no effect on the consciousness, other than it becomes the vehicle of experience for that consciousness, and it has limitations according to the rule set. That's it. So, yes, a healthy body is good for a healthy mind because it releases, it it, re, it reduces the amount of limitations. If you have a lot of stress, then it's really hard to relax and get rid of and empty your mind because that stress keeps your mind full, you see. So that's the connection between these things. Okay, now that's what – I'm sure there's more, so let's
0: – There's a little bit more to the question. He wants to really know – what your attitude towards self-improvement is and where would you draw the line with things you do to keep healthy and functional in this reality?
1: Okay. I do um, I do a lot of physical exercise. I do it five days a week. Um, it's like a job, you know, Monday, Monday through Friday. Uh, I get up and I spend my entire morning doing exercises. And I do... Um, the whole exercise routine probably depends on how focused I am. If I really focus on it, I can do it all quicker. If I just kind of let my mind wander through it, then it takes a lot longer. But it's somewhere probably between three and four hours that I spend from the start and from when I'm done with the shower, dressed, and now gone downstairs to go to work. You know, that's like three or four hours. It's a lot of time. But I've learned that the older you get, the more serious you have to get about uh, keeping your body working. So, I do that and I start with about a half an hour of core muscle exercises called Kegels. Then I go to a um, balance exercises on a vibrating platform, you know, stand on one foot and move this way and that way and do other things while you're standing on a platform that's jerking up and down and see, seesawing at the same time. So you learn balance. That's because you have main muscles, the big muscles, and they make up probably a small number of muscles. And then you have a much larger number of little tiny muscles that do things like balance, you know, a little pull here, a little pull there, a little push, just these, these little balance things that have to work. And that's not your big muscles. That's the other muscles. And you got lots and lots of those. And if you sit at a desk like I do all day staring at a computer screen, then all those little muscles atrophy. All right, the big muscles still enough to stand up and walk and lift things and do that, but all the little muscles that you exercise and say when you were a kid and you were out playing a game of, you know, uh, pick up football or basketball and you're running around and you're playing tag and you're shifting your weight this way and that way and starting and stopping and jumping and all of that stuff gets all these little muscles and your balance and your coordination works really, really well. But then you get a job and then you're in your 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and you spend a job sitting in an office someplace, all those little muscles kind of get weak and uh, go away and don't do the things you find that you're kind of clumsy Uh, it's hard to hit one key with your finger when you're typing with one finger, you end up hitting two keys because your dexterity and your coordination are starting to deteriorate because these little muscles don't work anymore. So I do balances on this moving platform and just go through a lot of motions so that those little muscles get jerked around a lot and they have to function to, uh, keep your balance. And then after that, I start doing weights and I do weights for anywhere between about 30 minutes if I'm really focused to about an hour and a half if I'm really not focused. Uh, and I had different sets of weights. Uh, I do two complete different programs with the weights. So one program I do Monday, Wednesday and Friday and the other Tuesday and Thursday, and then it's reversed for the next week. You see, so I just keep alternating between these different sets. And after I do a, that's and one set's a lot shorter than the other. The, if I'm really focused on the short set, I can maybe get it in close to half an hour to 40 minutes. Uh, and if I'm really not focused on the long set, it's more like a, an hour and 15, an hour and 20 minutes. Then uh, I do an aerobics, one of two different machines. One's a platform, one's a, um, a treadmill. The treadmill's not powered. I power it with my leg muscles. So it's got resistance that makes it hard to make that treadmill go around rather than having a motor make it go around. And all I have to do is move my feet. I actually have to push that treadmill against resistance to make it go around. And, um, uh, I do that for 20 minutes or I ride a Schwinn aerodyne, which is a, uh, a bicycle exerciser with has resistance against it. So that's it. And then when I get done with that, you know, I'm, it's time for the, you know, the, the steam room or, uh, you know, shower or whatever else I do before I get dressed and get ready. So all that happens before my day starts. So my day starts not until somewhere around 10.30 if I'm focused in the morning or as late as, you know, 12 lunchtime if I'm not. So it just uh, depends on how quickly I want to go through them and how much my mind wanders between exercises and so on. And I'm off other places doing other things. And that's what I mean by being focused on it or not. So, and I find that while I'm doing exercise is also a good time to do mental things because the exercises are kind of boring too. So you can do a lot of mental things. You can do healing. You can go places, do things while you're exercising. And so those kind of work together, but it slows the exercise down a little bit because you're not as, as quick between exercises. Anyhow. So I do that and I do it five days a week. And uh, that's a lot to do. I couldn't do that if I wasn't retired. Working for a living is unhealthy. (laughs) Physically unhealthy to go work for a living, you know, because you spend all your time, you know, working, sitting at desks not exercising, and then you get home and you're just tired. You don't want to come home after you worked all day and go do exercise. That's uh that's hard to do. Particularly if you work late and you come home and it's you know seven or eight o'clock at night, like go exercise? No way. You know, I go vegetate someplace and try to recover from a from a day of exhaustion. So Yes, working is hard. So I'm retired. So I, and since I've been retired, I've done this exercise routine, and it's made a big difference. It makes a real big difference. It makes your mind clearer as well as your body more fit. I'm now the same weight that I was when I graduated from high school and went into college. So, you know, it uh, it is important to eat well. That's the other part of it. Exercise, eat well. And, uh, keep your mind active and focused and working on things all the time. So then after that, I, so I, then I eat a uh, lunch, which is also breakfast. It's either a late breakfast or it's an early lunch, but I just eat one of those. I call it dinner, or no, uh, I'd be lunch and dinner. This would be, uh, uh, breakfast and lunch. So that's brunch, right? So you can have a brunch, Then I go sit at my computer and I work until my wife comes home from work, whether that's five o'clock or eight o'clock. And sometimes, if I'm really busy, I even work past that point. I work until I go to bed. So that's how I make up for losing my morning as I work my nights. Anyhow, that's my life. That's my physical exercise. And uh, I think it's important, it's very important but you're not going to do some kind of yoga and position your body and get your feet folded up just right and, and get the stretching and all that's good for your body, and that's great, but it's not going to magically decrease the entropy of your consciousness. That's different. Your consciousness and your body are two different systems. One is a virtual system. is compute computed in a computer, and the other is a real system, which is your consciousness. So they're very, very different. But now that doesn't mean that you can't have good tools that are very effective. Working on your chakra points can be very effective because the chakra points have been defined to have certain characteristics. And you work there, you get the way of focusing your mind on that characteristic and developing that part of you, you see. So it's a tool for helping you focus your mind on developing certain things. And it's good to break it into pieces because if you just focused your mind on developing everything all at once to be good, that's not enough detail for most people to feel like they're doing anything. They want process. They want work. They want steps. They want a, a you know, a prescription here, do this, this long on that in this way and then move on to the next thing that they can do. Cause we're doers. We're not beers. We want to do stuff. And if somebody says, well, you don't need to do anything to be, just be. And they say, huh, I don't know how to do that. Tell me what to do to be. So, you know, it's so we have lots of things to do. There's lots of tools for doing things. And like like Linda asked about, do you really have to get those black spots to show up on that white, you know, humanoid figure in order to do that step first before you take the next step of getting rid of the black spots? You know, you have to go through all that. Of course not. That's just a process, a doing process to help doers focus their intent on being. <laughs> so that's the way it is. If you're a doer, you need a you need process. And most of us are, are doers, not we don't know how to be. Just be ourself. You know, go be authentic. Huh? How do I do that? <laughs> that's impossible. Tell me what to do to be authentic. Yeah. Well, doing doesn't help you be anything, you see unless that doing involves getting your intent to focus on being.
2: Thank you, Tom. I, I understood from your question that you, your view is that uh, these exercises can uh, bring well-being to the body, which then, in conjunction with uh, everything we do, helps our intent to be more clear, and this uh, can actually help us grow. And uh, my, uh, I put these two questions uh, together uh, because I was curious whether you invest time also in uh, discovering other ways how to, let's say, take care of your physical body here. And I understand that, uh, well, your training regime is incredible for me. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> uh, and... Well, I was wondering how much time uh, you would be interested in uh, investing in investigation or new methods so that maybe you can, uh, uh, I don't know, do what you do for your body in half an hour
1: instead of four hours, right? Yeah, I could do it it a lot faster if I just, and there were times when I was busy, you know, I did this some when I was working too, it wasn't just since I, I've retired a bunch of times and when I was a consultant, I would still do these exercises, but I would be done with them by 10 o'clock in the morning. You say that I did them, but I was real focused on them because I needed to get them done because I had other things to do. So you don't have to take up your whole morning to lunchtime with it. You can, you can pack them into a much shorter time if you just do them. But I also use the time, you know, to do other mental things and whatever. So I'm really doing more than just the exercises. It's, it's a, it's a nice time to, to, uh, do all sorts of things because the exercises don't take a lot of mental effort. They take physical effort and, uh, you can, your mind then can be busy doing other things, but that slows me down. But yeah, I could, I, uh, did them and got done in a cup, you know, in a few hours. I'd start early and be done by 10. And when you're a consultant, starting work at 10 is okay.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I thank you. I understand that. The question was more aimed at: uh, if you knew that there actually is a more efficient way how to take care of your body, would you invest time in uh, discovering and
1: applying it to your life? If I knew that, if I knew it was more efficient, of course you always would do what's most efficient. But because you know the way the mind works and you know the way the body works it would be hard to imagine something that was drastically different that was a lot more efficient. Now it might be. It's probably most things that that would be drastically more efficient would probably be a better tool. Something that allows you to get there, you know, with less process. Just like Linda said, well can I throw this process out because it's getting in the way and I'm not as effective with it as I just skip a lot of that process. And yes. So if you can streamline your process to where you can get as much done but do it more more efficiently, then yes, that would be a good thing to do. And sure, I would do that if I had a, a sense that it would work, that that would be a good thing to do. But now when somebody says, you know, buy a bottle of these pills and if you take these pills, you won't have to exercise because they'll take care of all the things in your body that uh, you get. The same things that you get with exercise, this pill will do, you know. Well, I'm not going to be very quick to grab that pill and see if it works because, to me, that kind of violates what I understand about, you know, the body and the mind. So I'd pass that kind of thing up. But if I thought that there was a more efficient process, sure, I would do it.
2: I now remember that you have a very strong desire to play according to the rules of this reality And uh, maybe this is the reason uh, why you are not interested in these things because I think uh, there's a proven effect when uh, people imagine for example running or uh, exercising some muscles Mm -hmm. these muscles get stronger and I think in your view then uh, you
1: would violate uh, the rules which you don't like to do yes that that is correct I would rather run and do it just the way everybody else does it because I am here to experience just like everybody else, and to try to modify that experience, you know, is not, you know, to me is not a good idea. It's a better idea to just be here, be the way it is here, partake in this reality the way it works, and don't try to cut corners. Don't try to be clever and cut corners because I find that when you're clever and cut corners, usually that cleverness comes back and bites you. In some way or another, it's typically not such a good idea. You're better just to play, play it straight, and learn what you have to learn. Go through, you know, part of the part of the lesson, of course, in doing exercises is the discipline. It's the getting up and doing it and doing it day after day, and it's you know that's part of it. And if you can short circuit that, well, then you've lost that part of it. You've you've lost the discipline part. Um, And sometimes I do them both together. When I am, let's say, on my treadmill, often what my mind is doing is strengthening my legs as I walk and increasing my oxygen uh, intake, you know, when I breathe on the treadmill. So I'm using my mind to affect the, the efficiency of the process of doing the treadmill. So I don't mind doing that, but then I'm, I'm really doing the exercise too in the physical, you know, I'm, I'm doing it in the physical, but I'm augmenting that with mental processes as well. So you should see kind of the end result. So when you're doing those sit-ups, you should see yourself with that six pack of abs, you know, really tight and hard and a flat belly. And you should see that because that's, you know, that's going to be part of what you're doing. So I do part of my mental processes is exactly what you're saying, but I do it with the exercise rather than do it instead of the exercise. Cause that way I don't skip any of the discipline that's required. And I actually have to do the hard work. I have to sweat, you know, I have to, uh, you know, change my weights around. I have to do all the things that need to be done in the physical world because that's part of my experience here and short circuiting any of that I've found is generally not a good idea. Thank you very much. I think I understand you now much better. Thank you.
0: All right, Tom. I think we'll take one more question that we had emailed to us from one of your readers in Minnesota. He's the one and only Minnesota Minnesotan. Tomb. Um, this is from Gary, and he asks a question. We'll save. We'll save a couple of questions since it's getting late in Frankfurt. We'll save a couple of questions for the next uh, fireside chat in September. So this last question is, first, let me say how much I admire Tom Campbell and enjoy his books and videos. I think the reason his big toe has resonated so strongly with me personally is because I had more or less arrived at a similar but less sophisticated life is but a dream hypothesis. In fact, I can remember thinking as a young lad long before computers were commonplace, that the physical world and its inhabitants, including my older sister, might be a carefully crafted illusion created by some sort of machine. It also occurred to me that if the universe were infinite, there would have to be a 100% chance that there would be an infinite number of replica Earths as well, where the only difference would be what shirt I decided to put on that morning or whatever. I guess he's referring to the multi-universe theory.
1: Yeah, but it's, many worlds. Mm-hmm. Many
0: multi-worlds. Many worlds theory. Uh, what perplexes me about Tom's toe regarding the nature of consciousness is how AUM, which you're, that's your anachronism for absolute unbounded manifold, manages to metaphorically divide itself into disc- discrete bits that are functionally unaware of their true identity as Auo, absolute unbounded oneness. So, is Auo a complete mystery to itself?
1: <laughs> so he did. He say, "Did I get you right?" That he said that these uh, that the IUOCs were unaware that they were part of this larger system.
0: Um, he says how regarding the nature of consciousness, how all manages to divide itself into discrete bits that are functionally unaware of their true identity
1: yeah. as Auo. Okay. Um, I don't know that they are. That I would agree that they're functionally unaware of their own identity. Okay, that's probably not the case. They, uh, for the most part, many are very much aware of their identity. Now, once they come here, once that, once that individual unit of consciousness um, logs on to the PMR server, you know, and gets into the physical matter reality game here in this, this virtual reality, then it eliminates all of that knowledge. It it only comes in with the, with its quality, the quality that, 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 uh, individuated unit of consciousness had, has created for itself has evolved to that quality is what it comes in with nothing else. It doesn't come in with any of the intellectual stuff any of the understanding uh, in intellectual terms, but it comes in with some understanding and, and some quality you know, that it gets from its parent IUOC. So at that point now, the beings, the, the avatars here, or the consciousness, the free will awareness unit is playing avatars here, have no appreciation of the larger consciousness system to begin with. They have to learn that. They have to learn that there's a bigger picture. Now, uh, if they come with a very high quality of consciousness, they probably learn that very quickly because they've already got, you know, a high quality sense of it being a larger reality and so on. That's just things they know intuitively. So it comes to them much more quickly. If they don't have such a high quality to begin with, then that's a lot harder place to get to. That understanding is more, is more difficult. It's more of a challenge. So they don't, but that's just while they're logged on here as free will awareness units, the individuated unit of consciousness is also aware. It also, you know, basically has its function, it's things to do. It's the accumulator function. And I would say that many of those, if not most are indeed aware of the larger conscious system and their role and what they're doing and why they're doing it. After all, they're accumulating these experiences, helping that, uh, you know, helping themselves to pick a good next incarnation because of what they've learned, what they learn the next time, what they have yet to learn, where their weak points are and their strong points. They go through all of that analysis and then pick the next incarnation to help their overall growth. So how could you do that if you weren't aware that overall growth was, you know, was important? So they know their overall growth is what it's all about, reducing entropy is what it's all about. Becoming love, getting rid of fear is what it's all about. They're aware of all of that, and they're aware that they're a part of something bigger because they interface with a lot of other things. So I think they do have a very strong sense of being connected to the larger conscious system. Just because the the free will awareness units who are logged in to play a character here in this virtual reality come in clueless as far as their intellect goes uh, doesn't mean that all entities are are. Clueless about that, so I think maybe that's a problem in the in the assumption there. That uh, okay now okay. Given that, what is the final? What's the bottom line then on the on the question?
0: I suspect Tom will say that being a process or phenomenon that takes place outside the larger consciousness consciousness system.
1: How? Yes got a, got a dog riot here just a minute i don't know if you hear all now that who, but
0: who is that can we identify it was
1: him? all of them all so of my was dogs all of them. Okay. that's why i called it it's a dog riot all that's of them a dog just, just, <laughs> just, they probably heard okay. they probably heard somebody driving a driveway or some other kind of thing <laughs> like that they're all in the dog room and they all need to get out of one small dog door all at the same time and that takes a lot of barking
0: this, this question actually was a, a, little, a little bit uh, difficult for me to sort out. But the last paragraph he has, I suspect Tom will say, that being a process or phenomena that takes place outside the larger consciousness system, how or why AUO does what it does is beyond the comprehension of even the big cheese. Even though it is fundamentally composed of AUO reality cells, all ALM will ever be able to do is speculate. Would you agree with that?
1: Uh, Well, to some extent, that's probably true. It's not necessarily, um, you know, that there's, I, I suspect that there would be some, some, um, limits to knowledge and understanding. Yes. I suspect the, uh, only part of the consciousness system that has the whole big picture would be the executive part, right? It's the part that created the virtual reality. It's the part that, uh, you know, is, is the operating system, if you will, for the consciousness system that, uh, probably has the biggest picture and it's not always aware of everything that's going on inside. You know, just like we're not always aware of what's happening inside our body, you know, in our internal organs. So yeah, there's probably no one piece of it. That's acutely aware of every, everything else, but we do have the executive function that, the, that uh, evolved the virtual reality that we live in uh, for us to, you know, for us to play in that executive function also makes the rules and does other things, sets up the structure, you know, uh, uh, gives the big cheesy's job, you know, does that sort of thing. So that um, at that function, much is understood at the next level down, much is understood. Think of it like a corporation, right? The, the CEO of the corporation and the board of directors, should know the big picture of everything going on in the corporation, even though they don't know what's going on in the mailroom or you know down in the you know in, in B and G that cuts the grass and breaks the leaves. They don't know about the details, but they know all the big picture stuff that's happening and why it's happening and where they're going and what the plan is. Okay, then you get down to the uh, uh, you know vice presidents. And the vice presidents know a lot more, but they don't know everything that the CEO and the board of directors know. And then you get down to the directors, and they know some of what the vice presidents know, but not all of that. And then so on. You get down to the little people at the bottom in the mailroom, and they have no idea what's going on. They just get, you know, orders to do this and do that, and they do their jobs, and exactly why. They just know the mail needs to be delivered. They don't actually know what's in the mail or what difference it makes. They know they have a job and they do it. So it's kinda of like that. I suspect there's a progression of understanding of the bigger picture as you rise up in the hierarchy of, of uh authority and control inside the system. So it's not that all IUOCs have no idea what they're why they're doing what they're doing. I think many have a, a very good idea of what they're doing and are part of the system. But in general he's right. You know, in general there's a it gets foggier. You know, the further down in the system you are, the the less insight you have into the details. And there's probably no part of the system that is plugged into everything all at once, always. You know, the system also has focus. It focuses here, focuses there. Has projects, and sometimes a lot of stuff is just benign neglect. It just uh, you know lets that stuff go on as it goes on until there's a problem, kind of thing. So I just see it's like any other big system that has to that has to work who, uh, you know, it's a, it's a collective and I guess most collectives like that are really bigger than the sum of their parts. So you can't just look at the parts and say, that's all of it. It's really more than the sum of the, the sum of the parts, but there's probably more understanding than what he says or what he imagines, but it is limited and he's correct in that.